I can't tell if I can't stand that music or if I love that music. It's just wonderfully awkward kind of soundtrack, kind of like our topic today, redefining romance. Wonderfully awkward, perhaps. Soul awareness, deeper connection. Could be wonderful, could be awkward. But I'm super pumped to be bringing the message today because God has been bringing a message to me about this very topic. And perhaps Pastor Bill has been watching a process going on in me, and that's why he invited me here. But I never take it for granted. I always consider it a privilege to be before you, church, whether we're here in Coral Gables or over at our Kendall campus or at church online. Thank you for the opportunity to stand here first as a learner and then hopefully as a helper as we slay the dragon of our soul's awareness. Now, being aware would mean that we are identifying a truth. Would you agree with that? A truth about something. But the truth is kind of tricky. It can be complicated. We say things like honesty is the best policy, right? Okay, so, hey, honey, um, do these pants make me look? I'm thinking, really, honesty is the best policy? I like um, how uh, one pastor puts it. He says, everything you say must be true, but not everything true must be said. And I dig that. I believe that in the context of, the, of relationships, truth expressed in love, the way Jesus teaches, means that sometimes we speak it, but sometimes we don't have to because we're living it. Like it says in 1 John, let us not love with words and speech, but with actions and in truth. Not everything true has to be delivered through the mouth. Would you agree with this? Well, I am not very good at this. I believe that my mouth has really good things to say, really helpful, truthful information that will help somebody. I mean, it's the truth, right? Why wouldn't you want it? But a few years ago, uh, my sisters took me out to lunch. It had been a long time since we had had a sister hang. And by this point, we're in our 30s, we're all married, we have kids. Um, so we go to lunch and I could see that there was some awkwardness. I wasn't sure why. Both my sisters sat on one side of the booth. I sat on the other side of the booth. And my sister Mandy begins talking about how she's trying to figure out how to be a better wife and a better mom. Look, figuring out how to be married and then stay married, especially once the kids come, can be very challenging. I mean, have you noticed, for real, have you noticed that marriages can begin to struggle in those early childhood years of preschool and elementary? Um, it's a thing. It's a thing. So hang on. If you're there, hang on. So naturally, I think my sister Mandy is coming to me because I'm the big older sister and she needs some advice. But the more that she talks, the more I realize that what she's actually telling me is what it felt like to grow up with me as her older sister. And then my sister Gabby joins the conversation and she agrees that there were things that they felt growing up with me as their older sister and in fact, they still felt these things in our 30s at the table that day. Now, I wish I could tell you that what they told me was like a glowing recommendation letter of honor. But actually, what they said, the words were, were hard to hear, challenging for me to accept because I had my own perspective of truth, of what was going on with me as the great big sister who had to rise up and protect as a second parent in our house. But with courage and compassion, they offered me truth that day truth about myself that I would never have seen for myself. And they thought I could do better. They needed me to be their sister, not their mom. Soul awareness. 
And that one conversation began a process in me, and I started evaluating all my relationships, asking questions like, do I really always have to be right with my husband? Do I really always shut down conversations with one of my three boys who just wants to have a conversation with me because I have to have the final word because I'm mom? Do I prevent people from reaching their full potential at work? And do I squash ideas because I want it done my way? And what's the backstory on that? Why do I do that? Why, why do I have the need to control things? Those are not relational romance builders. They're connection killers. And I made a conscious decision that I was gonna work hard to do better and redefine how I love people. I'm talking about emotional intelligence, right? And this word is all the buzz, especially in business right now. If you Google it, you'll find stuff describing emotional intelligence as fundamental to measurable outcomes like increased leadership ability, team performance, decision-making, decreased occupational stress, reduced staff turnover, increased personal well-being. It's the hub of a flywheel that informs self-awareness, self-management, social awareness, and relationship management. It's understanding what's going on inside of me and why. Having self-control and adaptability, even as I pursue my desire to win and to achieve, or putting myself in someone else's shoes to try and understand, to identify why are we in this situation? And do we need to celebrate or do we need to correct? Having a positive influence, leading well, resolving conflict, working as a team, inspiring somebody. These are awesome skills for us to have in business, yes. But I'm thinking, what about the business of my marriage? What about the business of my parenting? or my friendships? What about the business of a young generation growing up in a world today where emotional intelligence seems really hard to find? What about that business? What about the business of those of you trying to find somebody to connect with and have a deeply meaningful future worth with? What about that? What about that business? You see, these skills are super important and critical in all relationships. In the boardroom, yes, but also in the bedroom in our classrooms, and in our operating rooms, in the editing room, or in your family room. Because every human interaction we are having is actually telling on us and our capacity to love each other well, to give and exchange truth with one another, to receive it and to offer it with how we say it, how we show it, and how we hear it, that's emotional intelligence. That's soul awareness. I think Jesus calls it the greatest commandment. Filtering everything through a love for God, a love for others, and a love for self. And Jesus knew how to do this better than anybody. And that doesn't mean that Jesus didn't feel or he lived in some kind of disconnected, naive love bubble. That's not true. The gospels are full of stories about a man who felt anger, grief, compassion, joy. So this isn't a message about denying our emotions. That is not very intelligent. And it doesn't look like Jesus. It is a uniquely Christian thing that God knows us emotionally because in Christ, God became human and lived a human life full of grace and full of truth. So today we're going to talk about some of the examples from Jesus' life that show us how to handle truth in our 
relationships. So I'm just going to jump right in here, and I'm going to start with the emotion of anger. And when I say anger, I mean all the pretend words we use for it too. Disappointment, frustration, whatever kind or word we try to use, what we mean to say is, I am angry. Anger is our reaction to injustice. But anger is actually a secondary emotion. It's secondary to primary things like fear, sadness, anxiety. So when we have anger issues, these are indicators that something else is going on. Something's going on in us. It's a signal. And Jesus shows us that anger actually exposes truth. Mark chapter 3. Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them, that's the religious super self-righteous hypocrites, they were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, there's the primary emotion, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Jesus was angry, maybe because they completely miss and then misrepresent the heart of God, and that makes him sad. So there's no name calling or powering up, even though Jesus knew exactly what they were doing. Jesus doesn't get defensive. He doesn't get into an argument that he knows it's not going to go anywhere. Have you ever been talked to so loudly that you couldn't hear a word the other person was saying? Yeah, Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he lets his anger signal him to a deeper truth, and he asks a question. What's the right thing to do on any day? And then he did it. He healed something. Now, I know this is an oversimplification, but what if the next time your anger is triggered, instead of just reacting defensively from your gut, what if your next thought was, hey, wait a second. What's really going on here? Who needs to be healed today? And is it me? Anger helps us recognize that something's going on that needs attention. It's usually one of three hurts. You've been hurt, you've hurt someone, or you've hurt yourself. And sometimes what we think we're angry about today is really about something from our past and we're taking it out on the wrong person. You know this is true because it's happened to you. And if it hasn't happened to you, if you think it hasn't happened to you, you may want to consider allowing somebody to speak some truth into your life and try really, really hard to let them and to pay attention. Someone with emotional intelligence pays careful attention and gives their anger thoughtful attention. So we redefine romance when we let our anger expose the truth. We identify that something needs to be dealt with instead of raging with anger. Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. That is Christ. That's how Jesus handles the truth. He doesn't just handle it with care. He handles it with love. So love enough to speak the truth well. And love yourself 
enough. Hear it. Let's look at a second emotion of Jesus. This is grief, extreme sadness. You know, in my own life, sometimes as I process anger, once that fire dies down, grief is what I feel. Loss. We feel this about relationships, reputations, financial stability, death. When we're honest enough to own that something hurts and we call that something by name, we grieve. Jesus did too, which means it's okay to not be okay. Jesus showed us that grief makes room to deal with the truth. Jesus showed grief when his friend Lazarus died. He arrives at the house to visit the family. He sees people in pain, and he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Even though Jesus knew he was going to raise the dude back to life for God's glory, he was still very aware of the emotions around him, the sadness, and he wept with them. He didn't interrupt the process prematurely and tell everybody to just get over it because everything was going to be okay even though that was the truth. He put himself in their shoes and he gave them the space to grieve. We also see Jesus take his own space when his cousin John the Baptist is murdered. He took the boat out for some alone time. Grief makes room to deal and sometimes that takes time. I lost my dad when I was 16 and I didn't grieve that loss for six years. I just kept right on barreling through life. And I look back on that time and it's like an emotional blackout. I lived from the neck up, no heart. And it actually ended up hurting people that were trying to love me. One of them being the very man I call my husband now. I was numb with grief. So round one with Caleb, it didn't end so well. He let me go. Gave me space to grow up, time to grieve. And I guess I'm just lucky that he was still available after all that time. Grief allows us the chance to deal with the truth. We redefine romance where we make time and space to grieve. For ourselves and for those that we're with, Ephesians 4.16, from him, that's Christ, the whole body, that's us, is joined and held together by every supporting ligament. It grows and builds itself up in love. Are we holding each other up and supporting one another? Or are we too quick to move on before fully dealing with an issue that's under the surface? And guys, side note, do you know what it does for a woman when you give her the space to feel? It is an incredibly powerful romantic move that heroes use to save the day, and you're welcome. Let's move on. Let's take a look at compassion. In Matthew 20, compassion motivates Jesus to heal two blind men. In Mark 1, a man with leprosy. Every time Jesus miraculously feeds thousands of people, it's compassion that drives him. That's what the scripture says. Same thing in John 8, when a woman is dragged into the street by the religious hypocrites once again after she's caught messing around. Like, hey, Jesus, how are you going to deal with this truth? Religion tries to, but it fails to manage the truth. But compassion activates it. That's what we see in the life of Jesus as he lowers himself to the ground that day and writes something in the sand that disarms the whole situation. Whatever truth he wrote down 
caused each accuser to back off when just moments before they were ready to kill her. And then Jesus says, hey, I have an idea. Whichever one of you has never ever sinned one day in your life, you get first shot. And everybody leaves. Compassion. It heals the sick, feeds the hungry, it corrects the wrong, and it honors the broken. Now, did you know that the word we use today for the emotion of compassion didn't exist in the original Greek? This is fascinating to me. The closest word they could find was actually a biological term to describe cramping or churning in the stomach. So Jesus literally felt sick to his stomach over people. Now, maybe you felt that too, but humanity didn't know that feeling until Jesus showed us. Is that amazing? The church had to make a word up to describe whatever this thing is that Jesus was feeling. His whole nature, being in very nature, God was moved with compassion for people. We redefine romance when we are moved with compassion and put ourselves in someone else's, else's shoes, not just to stomp around in ours. Be kind and compassionate to one another. What would it look like if we showed compassion for our spouses when they didn't close the deal this time? Or when dinner wasn't quite ready because it was just kind of one of those days with the kids. For our kids when they behave like kids. For our friends when they need a friend. For our coworkers when home life affects work life. That's redefining romance church and that is what looks like Jesus and that is the call of Jesus. Compassion, truth that is active. Not just calling it like you see it, but moving into it like you feel it. Next emotion, maybe you expected this one. It's joy. I'm thinking about the joy that must have been on Jesus' face when he had the children come to him. Or that day that he turned the water into wine for his mom at that wedding and just made her so happy. But the joy that seemed to travel with Jesus all the time was a joy that was focused on the truth. Joy focuses on truth. And not just any truth, eternal truth. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Now, how does joy show up in a sentence about shame? Because Jesus was focused on the truth of the end game, his end game. He had relationship goals for himself and the world and nothing was gonna steal that joy. All the pain, shame, fear and guilt and any other thing that we were gonna put on him, that our stuff going on Jesus, that Jesus took on himself on the cross was temporary to Jesus. All pain is temporary. All pain is temporary but it consumes our present, doesn't it? Hurts get our attention, which fuels anger, so we lose our joy. Joy doesn't simply happen to us. We have to choose joy and keep choosing it every day. If I want a healthy body that serves me well for many years, I have to make choices with that goal in mind, right? If I want a healthy relationship that serves me well as my happily ever after for many years, then I have to make choices with that goal in mind, right? Which means, what do we do about that argument? My unhappiness or that mistake, that really big mistake. For the joy set for him, 
Jesus endured it all already for you. Now listen, I don't believe Jesus wants anybody to stay in an abusive situation. Not mental abuse, not emotional abuse, not physical abuse, not sexual abuse, not verbal abuse, none of it. But there are lesser things that are robbing the joy from our relationships. And we can redefine romance when we choose joy as the priority truth. For example, your priority today may be to forgive. Or your priority may be to say a true I'm sorry and admit that you've done something wrong. Repentance and forgiveness are key to joy in relationships. A sincere apology and the release of forgiveness can bring two people together in a very special way. You know why that is? Because repentance and forgiveness are at the heart of our romance with God. Forgiving each other just as in Christ, God forgave you. Choosing joy means we recognize that the tension and pain of a moment in this world will pass. And we can either be consumed by that and waste precious moments of our lives dwelling on what's temporary, or we can be released by the joy that focuses on the eternal truth by faith. Like love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Not ever, not ever, not ever. Final emotion I want to talk about is vulnerability. Brene Brown defines vulnerability as the emotion that we experience during times of uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. Yeah, that sounds awful, right? It sounds terrible. Some of the examples of experiences that, that make us feel vulnerable were this. The first date after my divorce, trying to get pregnant after my second miscarriage, starting my own business, watching my child leave for college, apologizing to a colleague about how I spoke to him in a meeting, waiting for the doctor to call back, giving feedback, getting fired, Sending my son to orchestra practice, knowing how badly he wants to make first chair and knowing there's a really good chance he will not make the orchestra at all. Yeah, vulnerable moments on behalf of our kids, they're the worst, right? But here's an interesting thing that she goes on to say about her research. Across all of our data, there's not a shred of empirical evidence that vulnerability is weakness. Are vulnerable experiences easy? No. Can they make us feel anxious and uncertain? Yes. Do they make us want to self-protect? Always. Does showing up for these experiences with a whole heart and no armor require courage? Absolutely. C.S. Lewis says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be, be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. 
But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Jesus' greatest sadness would be for you to end up irredeemable. That's why he chose to make himself vulnerable. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus being vulnerable? On the night he went to the garden to, to pray, the night he would be arrested and die, he tells his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And then going a little farther, he fell to the ground. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. He didn't want to do it. He didn't want to go through with it. Do you ever feel like that sometimes in your relationships? Like, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm exhausted. Where is the way out? At some point, hearts that get hurt get stuck in anger when they don't grieve. And when we don't grieve, we not only lose our capacity for connection and compassion, but we also become unable to see the joy in life. And it, as it is at this very point that we make a choice to be or not to be vulnerable. The other option is to become so numb that you are unbreakable. Ephesians 4.18 says that this is what happens when people are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. First that happens with God and then it happens with the people we love because what's happening in our relationships is all about what's happening in our relationship with God. Think about it. How much do you trust God? That's affecting the trust in your relationships. How much do you think you need God? That's affecting your relationships. A lady said to me last week about her husband, he can never be what he needs to be for our family without letting God take over. And that's not something I can do for him. What's happening in our relationships is all about what's happening in our relationship with God. Are we vulnerable enough to admit that? Because vulnerability admits the truth. It's being really honest about ourselves, which can be extremely uncomfortable, but can be wonderfully awkward because it's actually a strengthener to our relationships. We redefine romance when we admit the truth. This hurts. I was wrong. I'm not okay. I need help. I need you. I love you. Are we vulnerable enough to exchange that kind of truth in our relationships with each other? Will we step into the wonderfully awkward or will we choose the weaker way, which I have done so many times, of self-protection and control, which actually distances us from other people and makes it harder for us to heal? Everybody is recovering from something that needs to heal. Emotional awareness is the portal for your healing. Your healing is connected to your ability to handle the truth. Did you notice that each time we looked at Jesus today, something got healed? In his anger, he healed somebody. In his grief, he healed somebody. 
In his compassion, he healed a lot of somebodies. In his joy, he healed the whole world. And in his vulnerability, he heals you. And your healing is connected to your ability to handle that truth. This is where hope is gonna meet you. This is where Jesus in a very real sense will become your way, your truth, and your life. Vulnerability is a confession of humility, which may be the most emotionally intelligent thing we can pursue because in humility, don't miss this, in humility, we can handle the truth. Truth exchanged in humility creates a safe place and gives permission for the people around you to be honest as well. And when everyone is being honest with everyone, sharing truth and love, well then church, then we're on our way. Then we're on our way to being a community that trusts one another, that helps people come out of the prisons that the darkness would love for us to stay locked up in. We're helping each other heal from old wounds and we're experiencing a kind of divine romance in our lives that only exists because the God of the universe is romancing us. What's happening in our relationships is all about what's happening in our relationship with God. So get honest about that. Honest about it all. What's going on inside? Are you angry? Are you grieving? Do you need some compassion or joy in your life? He can handle it. He can handle it. Tell him. I've heard that exchange called something getting soul naked. Have you heard that? It's a thing. It's a thing. But I think the dictionary word is vulnerability. Following Jesus will take you to vulnerable places, especially in relationships. So once you get honest with God, and he reveals truth to you, take that honesty into your relationships. Bob Goff says, when people ask me what it looks like to follow Jesus, I usually say that following him looks like dealing with all the issues everyone else is dealing with. Disappointments, tremendous joy, uncertainty, everything. And having your mind change all the time as you learn how Jesus would have dealt with these emotions. I know how Jesus deals with them. He heals something. What can you heal? Imagine waking up tomorrow and changing your mind about the divorce conversation you're having in your head. Imagine making space to hear from your kids after their day, their joys, their frustrations, instead of working late on your phone. Imagine being able to talk about anything with anyone, without becoming aggressive because you don't feel threatened because you're letting the truth of Jesus heal you, restore you. You're becoming someone who's full of it instead, full of the grace that he freely gives you and full of the truth of his spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, right now, I just want to walk through these emotions that we've explored of Jesus today and pray a special blessing on anyone who may need healing from, from situations, who needs freedom. God, for those of us that have anger that's really pointing us to a pain or an injury, I ask that you would meet us there. Help us to identify the truth that's really going on and help us to be receptive to exploring that with you. And God, for those that are grieving or maybe have withheld themselves from grieving, God, would you help that emotion lead us to you where we could find healing, where we could 
find that you love us, where we could find that there is a community around us that would help. Help us also, Father, to be the kind of people that would leave space for others to grieve and be support to them. And God, compassion, who does not need more of your sweet, sweet compassion, God, to put ourselves in someone else's shoes, to understand from a different perspective, perhaps even change our mind as our mind is, is transformed into the mind of Christ. And God, for joy, help us to choose joy as the priority truth that focuses on what's eternal and not on what is temporary, God. We need help with this. We need help to see above our circumstances and choose joy that comes from you. Help us to do that. And finally, God, vulnerability. God, give us the, give us the strength to be courageous. It is not weak to show vulnerability, Father that we would say, hey, I'm not okay when we're not. That we would go to some wonderfully awkward places with each other because you went to a wonderfully awkward place for us. And my next prayer, God, is for those who today realize that Jesus Christ came to earth in the flesh and lived a human life, not just physically, but emotionally. And today you understand that Jesus gets you and Jesus made a way for all healing to happen through his death, through his burial, and through his resurrection for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, made himself vulnerable. If that's you, then I'd like to lead you through a prayer. Lord Jesus, come into my life, heal me, save me, and help me to get to know you and follow you for the rest of my life. Help me to pursue humility so that I could be healed in your name. And with our heads still bowed, if you offered that prayer between you and God, but you would allow me and our other pastors at our other campuses to pray for you, would you just raise your hand and online you can click the orange banner and we'll be praying for you. Praying God's deepest blessing over your decision of faith to follow him and to enter a relationship with him this divine romance with God your Father through Jesus Christ, his Son. Jesus, bless our church. Be real in our church. Help us not to play the kingdom of nice with each other, but to do the kingdom of God with each other. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.